Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. I know that intro's intense. I liked it. It's uh, yeah. not long enough. We need we need longer. We need to go full five minutes of just intro music. <laughs> oh, hey, good morning, good evening, folks. It is the one and only notorious boys Vita Gorilla Economist coming to you live on this edition of Rogue News. In the morning, it is our geopolitical roundtable. We're having some amazing guests with us. We have the one and only professor himself, Matthew Arrett. You can find Matthew over at the CanadianPatriot.org, CanadianPatriot.org as well as the risingtidefoundation.net, risingtidefoundation.net. You can also uh, check him out at his Substack. Make sure you subscribe to his Substack. Get his books. Amazing, amazing, amazing books. It's it, it, well worth the read. And look right there. Buy the books. Right there. It's on that link. Click it. Get the books. And we have also with us the man of the American in Russia. The American in Russia. The one and only Tim Kirby. From Tim Kirby, Hardcore Russia is here. Uh, he's joining us live, and we also have another guest coming on for the first time. Uh, who, see, who's our who's our other guest? It's uh, yeah, uh, Vanessa, Vanessa Bealey. Yep, yep. Yes, Vanessa Bealey. Bealey, Bealey. Yep. She's and, gonna uh, be joining here a little bit. And what is her uh, her? Uh, she's a reporter, correct? I, I didn't get the whole. Yeah, Matthew right. can probably do it more justice than I can. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So yeah, v- Vanessa is uh, just an incredible reporter who's uh, on the front lines in Syria. She's been there for three and a half years. Uh, she was one of the observers in the recent elections in East uh, uh, Donbass. And oh, wow. uh, yeah, she, her reporting is just impeccable. She al- she's also a regular um, commentator for the UK column. And uh, so, yeah, she'll be joining in like 15 minutes or something, right? Fantastic. Correct. And boy, was being an observer at those elections a uh, high risk uh, because uh, basically every person involved, uh, involved has faced some sort of repercussions back home. But uh, thankfully, she doesn't have to go back home ever again. Good morning. All right. All right, gentlemen, a lot of things going on, lots of things happening. Where do you guys want to begin? I mean, the moves that are happening within the last two weeks within Ukraine, within the Eastern European theater of, of war with Russia, all these other things. Um, I guess we'll open it up, um, you know, Matt or Tim, whichever one of you guys want to start off first. Well, Tim, you want oh, to go I first? Guess, or you're there I in guess Russia. I could take it from there. Um, I, in some ways, uh, the Russian public is getting what they wanted. Uh, they were asking for an escalation, kind of confused as to why things were going so slow. And the real thing, that's why I dropped a few links about this. The number one is the fact that 
Uh, now Russia sort of has opened up using a lot of drones, especially Iranian drones and a lot of missiles, to actually attack mostly the Ukrainian power grid. Uh, that seems to be sort of the main target. Uh, my guess as to why the power grid is not only because, you know, if you want to destroy your enemy, you take out their power sources, but because I think it's a sort of humane way to try to break them. Yeah. You know, it doesn't particularly kill anyone, but it makes life miserable. And it also really sends a signal because, as you know, Putin's been talking over and over again that, like, guys, we have a lot more capabilities than what we're showing. I forget his particular wording, but he said something like, we, we haven't even begun the fight. And I think that this was a demonstration of that because the Ukrainians, to an extent, have have started to believe their own, you know, drink their own Kool-Aid. And I think that it's maybe even possible that they really started to believe that the Russians are out of weapons or out of options or this, that and the other. And uh, after the um, arrival of the new uh, field marshal for this uh, endeavor, uh, they've been uh, launching missiles every day, again, mostly targeting the uh, electric grid, but also some of the... Uh, major um you know command posts like the office of the sbu the sbu would be like the equivalent of like the cia uh in america or something of, of that nature the kgb of the soviet union uh that are very much uh, uh responsible for a lot of the coordination of what's going on uh on the uh, ukrainian side so we're definitely seeing uh i don't know if you want to call it an escalation but a uh taking off the kid gloves uh which is a weird expression i've never really liked yet i chose to use it so that's kind of what we're seeing here. Some people think the response to the Crimean Bridge, something that's completely unconnected and would have happened anyways. But the Crimean Bridge being this like uh, terrorist attack specifically on civilian infrastructure <laughs> that the Ukrainians admitted to, it certainly um, checked a certain legalistic box. Like, okay, you can do that against our civilian infrastructure. Then we can attack your civilian infrastructure. And guess who can do it better? Oh, yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. So, you know, I, I think that's, kind of, yes, we're going. No, no, you go, well, man. Take it, take it. I, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you're just saying, like, that, that's the thing with reality, right? Like, you should never consume your own drugs. Every drug dealer knows what you sell it, you don't consume it. But these guys seem to be consuming the drugs that have been provided to, to basically pacify, like, an opiate for the masses, their population, their, their target population. And when they start believing the, the, the propaganda, you run into, um, well, exactly what we're seeing. I think, you know, even the U.S. population was given over the course of many, many years, but it was admitted. I was rewatching some of the uh, the NBC reporting from um, April of this year, how the new strategy of the Biden administration is to use unverified uh, intelligence that they make public and they leak to, you know, NBC, MSNBC, CNN, everything um, in order to confuse partially to confuse Putin and, and their other enemies, China and other things, uh, by giving out warnings that Putin will use nuclear bombs, he'll use biological warfare against the free West. And we have this, this information that he'll use crisis actors to have an inside job in East Donbass. And we just say these things. And they admitted that they just say these things. They don't actually believe it. They know it's false, but they're lying to the people in order to have the people become part of the, the warfare against Putin to keep him destabilized and warn him, hey, we're watching you. So I wonder that's sometimes a, how much... a weird way to do that, man. <laughs> it's a super weird way that they came out so openly. And I, I wonder, like, how much the upper echelons of the managerial structure also end up believing their own propaganda. And I, the way I listen to Sullivan, uh, Biden, uh, that, that whole coterie of... Use, mm -hmm. I wouldn't even say useful idiots, because ultimately they are idiots 
they're deployed mm -hmm. to do something to get a certain effect, but they're not very good at it since they're still operating on an assumption that it's 1992 and the New World Order script is somehow still intact. There is no such thing in their minds, it seems, of a, um, you know, you're an actual functional Eurasian economic security partnership, which is very advanced. It's much... You know, it was already pretty significant a few years ago. It's much more advanced now. And with Saudi Arabia increased, like, very much on board, Saudi Arabia has come to the realization that their uh, future is not going to be at all insured if they stick on with this great reset, you know, post-carbon age uh, that we've been promised where supposedly all of the 100% of, uh, of the industry of Europe says the EU is going to be supported by windmills and solar panels by uh, 2030 or something like that. 100%. Maybe that's because they don't believe that there will there maybe only will be like one factory in all of Europe. Maybe that's why they're oh, saying yeah, that. I don't you're know. You're talking about believing your own lies. That's the Germans about this energy stuff. I think the German public was sort of lulled into this belief that, you know, a significant part of their uh, energy needs are being met by, you know, wind and solar and all that stuff. And it's probably less than 1% in reality. So this whole uh, green revolution thing is a joke. Well, first off, there's also the side of it that for some reason in the EU, they want to do this, but they also want to do that in the totalitarian way where you just can't buy solar panels and put them on your house without some sort of permits. So there's that weird side. They won't let the public do it, only the government. But on the other hand, it's just, it's, it's, uh, well, here's the thing, Matt, this is the big question I want to then maybe even ask you here is, so do the elites in the West, are they still in this sort of uh, fantasy watching Rome burn that they believe that they're going to win no matter what? Or are they in the mode of like they've kind of seen that the ship has sailed and it's time to milk the last billions they can? You see what I mean? Yeah, I, I think there's like a hierarchy of intention Ooh. and understanding within the structure. And I think on like, you know, on, on some lower levels, they, they have um, higher... High, lower level managerial grunts who are assigned to get certain types of actions who are motivated by certain things and certain thoughts and certain ideas about the way the world works. Um, you know, like did Dick Cheney do what he did uh, to Iraq and, and did he maintain the lies he did because he had a lot, he wanted to make a lot of money for his Halliburton buddies and, and other contractors. Yeah, probably on a higher level in the decision-making process of grand strategy was the Iraq war about just making money for oil and, and arms deals? Not really. Ultimately, I mm -hmm. think there was an understanding more of a geopolitical appreciation of uh, the world as a whole that, is, that that's more than money. Um, and, and ultimately, the idea of keeping the heartland of Eurasia as, as destabilized as possible, inflame a situation both for the spread of, of terrorism as, you know, weaponized yeah. grouping, but also, you know, to create a, a structure in place whereby the, the U.S. could be increasingly used um, as itself a weapon instead of being a sovereign nation in order to control its own people when the system blows out. And I think that those who are managing the thing from the top understood for many, many decades that the system they put in motion back in the 70s, and I'm here, I'm talking about the David Rockefeller, the Trilateral Commission, the, the stuff that yeah. a lot of people tend to ignore because it's like, ah, it's too much for me. But it's like, this is reality. Like, they, they put something into motion as a change in the early 70s that would that turned a once viable productive economy into a time bomb and that was designed to always collapse the, the, the you, it's almost like it's almost like you're playing coy with us matt are you talking about the petrodollar are you talking about some mixing <laughs> era stuff here 
but you just don't yeah, want exactly to say it for right. some reason. Is it, are you not allowed to say petrodollar on YouTube? Oh no, it's one of the bad words. It's one of the naughty Sorry, words. Guys. I got us banned from YouTube. Oh no, no petrodollar. <laughs> it's the new F word. <clears throat> yeah. so, because that, that changed a lot, but unfortunately, I'm not the great economics expert here. Uh, v, uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, how the petrodollar changed the realities for America and uh, where we're going on that front. You know, when you talk about Western elites, you know, being lulled to sleep, and and, and Matt's right. There, are, in in multiple levels of this stuff, you have two camps. You got the camp that literally thinks they're not, you know, nothing is going to beat us. It's, it's 1992. We are the hyper power of the world and so on and so forth. And you got the other aspect of it where um, they know the jig is up. Okay. We've been living rent free. You know, we've been living off the rent that we've been getting from the petrodollar for the last several, several decades. Okay. And especially since 71. And, and I've said this for years ago. I said it years ago. I said the American dream is built. You know, it, it, yeah, it's a pipe dream, but that pipe is Saudi pipelines. Okay? That's what the American dream is built on, Saudi pipelines. And when Saudi pipelines no longer want to value what is coming out of those pipelines in dollar-denominated terms, there's a significant problem. When Saudi pipelines said, hey, you know what? We created this called Saudi Aramco, American you know, Arab-American oil, right? Largest oil company in the world. And now the Saudis are like, wait, wait a minute. You know what? Here's the deal. We need to do what's best for us. We need to perhaps realign ourselves with the BRICS. The United States is on borrowed time. And not only are our elites been lulled to sleep, that these are, you know, brain-dead morons who literally are living in the 80s and 90s, but so is our, polit- our, our public, right? The, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the people still think that we're this lone hyperpower that we're the largest economy in the world, we're the most powerful military in the world, it's hubris, it's lies, it's not reality, it's not based on truth. So there's a double entendre where both the elites and the people are deluded, and only a small fraction of the people are awake, they know what the hell's going on, they know something is wrong, and they know this is not a normal cycle. There's nothing about where we are today, economically speaking, in this country is a normal cycle. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah, I was having a yeah. conversation with. Can the, you confirm or deny that Saudi Arabia is now trading in local currencies as well as the dollar? Because uh, I've heard that float around the internet, but I don't know if it's true. So, are they like selling oil to China in uh, yuan, or is that uh, some sort of BRICS propaganda? I would call it propaganda. Um, okay. I remember back in 2013, right up to the buildup of the Maidan in 2014, one of the things I said, there's been 26 at that time, 26 yuan swap facilities set up all across the world, from Australia, New Zealand, France, Britain. I mean, you name it. There was 26 swap facilities. And if I'm not mistaken, one of those swap facilities was Saudi Arabia. Okay? Mm. Are they right Mm. now... I would not. It would not surprise me one bit if the Saudis are selling oil in yuan. It would not surprise me. Would it surprise okay. me? Hmm. Interesting. And they're not advertising or letting it be known. It wouldn't surprise me. No, and I think that's one thing that Russia maybe, or maybe even more specifically, not Russia. This time it may actually be Putin's fault. In quotes, that uh, Russia's tended to do everything very quietly. I think this was also sort of part of the plan where. Maybe they actually, well, first off, Russia's terrible at PR, so maybe it's a natural oh, yeah. phenomenon that they weren't able to sort of show just how well-developed the military and the economy actually are. There could be that, but it also could have been done on purpose to kind of 
uh, do a lot of stuff in quiet, and then all of a sudden, oops, we've evolved. <laughs> We're a lot more stronger and more technically advanced than you uh, really ever expected. Uh, you know, so that's also within the realm of possibility. I don't know. So who knows? Who knows? But uh, I definitely know that um, there's good reasons why the United States heavily underestimates Russia. And I think part of it may have been that Russia kind of possibly liked on some sort of level when you're playing the big strategic global chessboard oh, to be yeah. considered a gas station masquerading as a country. Good. Yeah. Think of us as that. That'll give us time to, to develop while you think we're worthless. You know right. what I mean? Sun Tzu, so Art of War. There may be something to that. Um, yeah, it's very Sun Tzu. It's very, you know, um, very Clausewitz in the way that they've uh, they've reacted in, 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 in towards America's perception mm -hmm. of who they are. And, and that's the problem with the U.S. Oh, we have yeah. think tanks. I, I, I mean, the entire United States military incompetent complex, along with the politicians, if you can visualize a massive circle jerk. That that's all what it is. It's a I, I, massive I circle jerk. I don't. I don't know if it's me and some somehow me and some chicks maybe, but I, I don't know. Now the but, U.S. Uh, is I, like, I, hey man, hey, uh, you know, it's a, it, the U.S. politicians are like, hey, here's the deal. Why don't all of us sit on our hands for a couple hours until they're nice and numb, and then uh, we'll go circle jerk each other, talk about how great <laughs> we are and how invincible we are, and and, yeah. and and it'll be a whole new experience. We've never felt anything like this before. And this is the problem. When you have think tanks that are telling you that you're the greatest, you're the best, you're, you know, invulnerable, you're impenetrable, and you cr and, and then you – you know what this whole Russia – folks, you got to understand. Mm -hmm. Ukraine, the most well-trained NATO army outside of Turkey, right? not counting the United States or Turkey, right? Yeah. If Ukraine, the way that it was trained and funded by the United States, okay, went to war – with Germany, as Scott Ritter would say, it would roll over Germany. It would roll over Poland. It would roll over a lot of the European armies. That's how yeah. well-funded they are. And to see the fact that you had Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, saying, hey, you know what? Uh, we're running low on HIMARS. Uh -huh. We're running low on HIMARS, the, the rockets that we need for HIMARS. We're running low on, on not only the, the 777 howitzers, but also the shells for the howitzers. What that showed to me and showed to the rest of the world who had ears to hear, except it's completely escaped on the minds of the West. You saw that all of a sudden the United States, when faced with a technological peer, folds like a cheap suit. Okay? The United States industrially cannot even keep up with the amount of loss. This is a NATO-trained, NATO-coordinated... Translate NATO to put U.S. U.S. trained, U.S. coordinated, U.S. targeted, U.S. telemetry, U.S. advisors. We know who they are, special operational forces, and yeah. contractors, right? A lot of them. A lot of a contractors lot of out there. And they are getting rocked. They're getting rocked by the Russians. Why? Because yeah. a paper financial powerhouse, which is what the United States is, a paper powerhouse, based on financial paper, will always, nine, 10 out of 10 times, will always lose to an industrial power. And that is what this world, China's taking note here. The rest of the world's taking note. ASEAN nations are taking note. India's taking note here. And Russia's showing it to the world. This is what happens when you have a phony baloney country basing its entire military wealth on, on 
paper and paper economy yeah. and GDP debt faces an industrial power. Yeah. They get their asses kicked. Well, yeah, that's like the thing with the uh, the giant military budget. Everyone's so impressed. You know, the, the, the budget of the U.S. military is bigger than the rest of the world uh, combined, or at least the major powers of the world combined. Greatest money laundering system. Yeah. You know, uh, you can buy a hundred, you can buy a hundred thousand dollar car, but it could be a complete piece of crap. Oh, it's, it's, it's worse. Really it's worse. Like, well, show me, you know, show me the car that costs a hundred thousand dollars. What condition right. is it in? What does the motor look like? Uh, you know, that's kind of the thing. Yeah. And we can, we don't get to see that. Mm. You know, the, the, the reporters and the journalists, they don't get to see the military industrial complex. They just get to see that money goes into it in huge amounts. So who knows if it's actually working, but to play devil's advocate, I've heard the argument that actually what Lloyd Austin means is, you know, in the military industrial complex just wants to make money. So they're lying. They actually have everything they need. They produce a ton of stuff, but they want that extra kickback cash. What do you say to that? That's exactly what it is. Matt, I mean, we're living in the world of $200 coffee pots in the, for the Air Force, $80 uh, toilet seats for the, for, for the military. Look, these idiots in the West are talking about sending over NATO tanks, Abrams, and we've seen what the Abrams have done in, in, in the deserts of Yemen, right? They go up like Roman candles and they burn for days, right? Because some genius thought it was a wonderful idea to put a jet engine, okay, a turbine jet engine into a tank. So it burns really good when it gets hit by an anti-tank missile, right? We've seen the F-35. Know, but that's kind of heavy metal, bro. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's extremely heavy. It's extremely heavy. And you see a lot of this, right? Yeah. It will make no difference what the West does. All of Germany has already said, you know, we're, we're, we're out of munitions. The, the Brits are out of munitions. The French are out of munitions. The Americans are like telling the Ukrainians, look, uh, uh, we'll give you more HIMARS uh, than these rockets. In, in, in six months, the Ukrainians wasted 12,000 of these rockets. It, it takes the U.S. The U.S. only produces 5,000 a year, Right. And so it's amazing to me that the paper oh, tiger. Whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. Yeah. that's it. That's it, dude. Shocking, right? Shocking. I don't know, man. Uh, I've heard of some union labor being lazy, but that's intense. Oh, it's very intense. I mean, look, the most well, they've, they've lost the productive. Exactly, yeah. man. No, they, they've lost the productive capacity completely. I mean, the the U.S. and, and the if you go back even in the nineteen you know nineteen thirty nine nineteen forty forty one. They had much, a, a much greater power of productive capacity, which allowed the U.S. to be a useful supplier for the lend, the lend lease program. And you look at yeah, some of the yeah. statistics of what the U.S. was pumping out of former automotive plants from Philadelphia or Detroit in world, you know, the lead up to, to the U.S. entry to World War II that were producing a massive number of trucks, tanks, cars, all sorts oh, of yeah. equipment for uh, supplying uh, Russia, for, for supplying China um, in their fight against fascism. That has been completely hollowed out. Proportionally speaking, the productive powers, these 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 zones, like Hitler even said, if I was going to attack, he had a, a list of the different strategic zones that he could attack with his, you know, uh, new generation rockets. And Detroit was number one on that list. I mean, mm. if you look at Detroit today, it's a wasteland. Like we did exactly yeah. what Hitler wanted to do because it was such a productive center of the world. We did it to ourselves. Over, which just took a little bit longer. Philadelphia, wasteland. We annihilated oh. these zones of potential production. And, Matt, and remember, now you're talking to the, uh, the overlord of the Rust Belt here. Trust me, I've seen it. At one point in time, this is hard to believe, but apparently it's true. In Akron, Ohio, right after World War II, you know, when a lot of the competitors were destroyed, they made 90, as in 90% of the world's tires. 
automotive tires yeah. that many that's why akron ohio even existed and why there's like a bunch of old decaying mansions there because it was that valuable but alas they deindustrialized us anyways uh our uh, panel i think just grew yeah hey, Vanessa Billy, welcome hi guys thank you so much for inviting me on it's I, I'm kind of going to leave it up to you experts to keep talking. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. We, we, we'd love to hear from you. Vanessa, <laughs> why don't you introduce us? It's your first time here on road. Why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Um, yeah, I'm just uh, an independent uh, journalist based in Damascus and Syria. My work is focused predominantly on the Middle East. So in Syria, Iraq, Palestine, um, where I spent some time in 2012, 2013, um, and obviously more recently in the Donbass and in Russia to um, as an independent observer of the Donbass referendum. Excellent. Welcome, welcome. Since you've mentioned it, and uh, we were just uh, hot on the heels and talking about uh, what has happened uh, or what's currently going on in Ukraine and, and the Donbass region and stuff, and you as an observer, uh, what did you, um, what, what is your take? What is your what did you get from everything that's going on there? The Donbass people overwhelmingly voting to be part of Russia to say no to this this this, this rabid imperialism that is running, you know, roughshod over them. Uh, go ahead, Vanessa. Well, I mean, my experience, and I have to say, my experience is is very limited. I spent a very short time in the Donbass itself in Donetsk. Um, but I visited the uh, refugee centers in the east. Sorry, my electricity just came on um, in eastern uh, uh, Russia. So um, my experience of talking to the people uh, both still in Donbass and those that had left the Donbass for the safety of Russia is that um, this referendum was to a, to a large degree something that they had all been hoping for for some time. Of course, there was a previous referendum in 2014, but most of them actually spoke about going back to 1991. And that is where they felt the mistake had been made of, of basically handing the territories over to Ukraine. None of them um, expressed that they had felt any consistency in their relationship with Ukraine and that they had always um, felt themselves to be more Russian than Ukrainian. And of course, from 2014 onwards, um, that differentiation became very marked, mostly by the violence of the ultranationalist regime forces unleashed by the US and their regime change coup in 2014, that then um, committed extensive atrocities against the citizens of Donbass, um, for eight years, killing more than 14,000, many of which were children, of course, creating kill lists, more than 300 uh, children on the Myrotvoretz, um kill list, which, of course, we know has NATO, US, UK intelligence hands behind it. Um, and so the people that I saw in Donetsk who were both voting and then counting the ballots, there was a sense of euphoria. Um, and a sense of um, the inevitable was finally happening, that they could finally return to the protection of Russia, having defended themselves um, effectively for eight years through their own national defense forces. Very similar. I, I always draw similarities between Syria and, and what's been going on um, in Donbass. Um, and... 
there was a real sense of euphoria. There were no guns to people's heads. Um, there was no coercion to vote. In fact, the people came out under um, rockets and missiles and threat of, of SBU infiltration and, and possible assassination attempts, etc., to come and vote. Um, and I think in Donetsk itself, I didn't actually see any Russian soldiers at all. Um, those that I did see were the DPR forces. And my colleague said the same in, in Lugansk. So this idea of this overwhelming Russian invasion and occupation is, you know, it's, it's being heavily misrepresented in the West. Mm -hmm. Remarkable. Do any gentlemen want to add to what uh, Vanessa said? Oh, about that. Yeah, I can add something real, uh, real prompt. First off, when the special military operation started, uh, Putin gave a one-hour speech where he sort of went into the history of what's happening. And what Vanessa just mentioned about how people saying that they didn't want to be part of Ukraine, that's one of the things that Putin mentioned is that really the borders of the sort of Soviet socialist republics were drawn in the sort of 1920s to meet the needs of the 1920s and especially to meet the need to create this illusion that what was happening was some sort of international movement. Uh, like the original, uh, what's it's called? Uh, national anthem of the Soviet Union was called L'Internationale. Uh, and internationalism was a real big buzzword throughout all of communism. And so in a lot of ways, because Russia was one big entity, they kind of wanted to make it look like this coming together of a group of countries, of red countries under great marks, uh, and so on. And so in a lot of ways, a lot of the suffering and conflict and murder that's happening uh, in our modern world since 1991 is connected to this bizarre propaganda goal of drawing the map the way it was uh, in the 1920s. I could say, for example, uh, when Tajikistan got independence, uh, a lot of Russian people suffered really hard. But this was before the Internet. This was before uh, cheap cameras and all that stuff. So a lot of that will... Uh, uh, remain a little bit of a mystery, but uh, eventually they might find the bodies, I'll put it that way. So Tajikistan got hot. There have been a lot of uh, ethnic conflicts in Central Asia. Uh, there's the whole uh, on and off war in Nagorno-Karabakh between Armenia and uh, Azerbaijan. Uh, the uh, war in Georgia in 2008 is connected to the stupid borders. Obviously, the Ukrainian conflict is connected to the stupid borders. And a lot of the repressions that Russians have faced are definitely in connection with the Baltic countries and how uh, there's not a very clear overlap of where Russianness ends and where those Baltic cultures begin, so on and so forth. So what the communists did in the 1920s, uh, not just in terms of uh, some of the goofiness of communism itself, but these uh, borders uh, have created an absolute nightmare. Um, the question of what they should look like is a little bit different though. But when everyone was in the Soviet Union, uh, I'll put it this way. Things were a lot more ethnically uh, chipper. You know? Absolutely. Matthew? Well, there definitely seemed to be a, a divide-to-conquer strategy. I mean, there, that, that's always been the case for empire going back thousands of years. As far as we could see, there's always been the same formula applied and readapted generation to generation of divide up your enemies to better manipulate them, get them to ideally fight each other, amplify little ethnic differences, religious, linguistic, whatever differences. You know, here I am in Quebec, and there's been a long tradition of the British Empire, which we're still a British crown territory, you know, 
Uh, people forget that our head of state is not is not Justin Trudeau. It's it's the Governor General of the arm of the the Crown um, with a Privy Council office and uh, and and Lieutenant Governors and a whole weird Byzantine structure of a shadow government behind the scenes, which is enshrined in our Constitution. Which you know, as as a side note, even says that we exist in 1867. That Constitution, be, the what's called the British North America Act. It says that we exist for the to serve the interests of the British Empire in our in our preamble, <laughs> not the people, not the not the nothing. It's it's the it, interests of the British Empire. So you, you know you have a situation where we have this odd thing with like you know a French uh, language culture in this part in this one province, which is a majority. It's been like that because this used to be a French colony taken over by the British after the Seven Years' War. They chose not to uh, go with the American Revolution. Instead, they stayed loyal. They got some bribes, some little local freedoms. And there has been 200 plus years of inflammation of false senses of pride, of ego, of this idea that we are, we have to, um, you know, if anything, fight and bleed and die for the sake of our, our French heritage. But at the same time, some of it is justified. There have been abuses, you know, and, and so they've been playing both sides um, to the point of, uh, you know, blood on the streets. Like my 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 parents' generation has uh, stories of it was much more violent back then where you had the English gangs, the French gangs, they would fight. It never became uh, as hot as the uh, the Nazi situation in Ukraine. But all that to say, the oligarchs have been toying with different ethnic groups uh, to inflame and create regional little local blocks. And I was just thinking quickly about Zbigniew Brzezinski, you know, mm. uh, basically drooling over his grand chessboard, talking about his dream of creating, uh, what is it, something like 12 micro-federations, which over the former territory of Russia as part of the broader balkanization process in 1997. And now yeah. today, you know, you get people like Gary Kasparov and others working with the Decolonized Russia Project talking about the need to you know, that, that Russia is potentially 89 or 90 different little sub sub nations that could all be that should all be empowered to be their own thing because they all have their own history. Uh, that's all unique. And, you know, ultimately, they, they don't care about these people. They, they're willing to use and manipulate these these people just to destroy the sovereignty, the viability of sovereign nation states and get them to just implode over time, which it seems like that was what some of the missteps of the Bolshevik leadership at that time they walked right into some of these traps. I don't know what the... And I'd like to, let me show you something about, but, um, about the contrast, the contrast between the land and sea empires. This is important because, yep. you know, people sometimes asking about the level of freedom of speech in Russia. So I've heard there's a lot of freedom of speech, but one thing that I can tell you that they don't like or it would be something that if you started to do on VK, the Russian Facebook, uh, you might get a knock on the door, is rabble-rousing. In Russia, like if you're going to go around saying that people like some ethnic group here needs to die, including the Russians themselves, which is different than the West, you're in a lot of trouble. Uh, because one of the things with the land empire is you cannot have people infighting. It is the opposite of the British Sea Empire. They control from far away by making sure that everyone's fighting with each other and don't rise up. Whereas within Russia, you want to make sure that everyone kind of gets along and intermarries and all this, that, and that, because they're all part of one big mass. So that right. way you don't rise up and your that's empire right. breaks apart. And that's another that's thing right. about why there's this uh, a sort of um, uh, desire within Russia to project this idea that, guys, actually, you got it all wrong. Empire isn't the problem. It's sea empire being the problem. And land empires, <clears throat> like Russia, 
are amazing and it's such a better way to do things and it's a lot less racist so on and so forth so i just want to kind of provide that contrast here that's interesting you know um oh yeah go for it no no go ahead maddie i was gonna say like for me it's like sometimes it gets into a little bit of of the word itself like the, the english language is limited it's almost like we need different words for different um species of idea of empire because the word empire yeah. itself being a singular over overly simplistic term is blanket used in a, in a misused way sometimes it applies sometimes it doesn't and the thing that i was thinking really that makes empire become a a, a really bad thing is when the philosophical operating system is one of a hobbesian subdue the weak for the advantage of the strong. And as soon mm -hmm. as you like a lot, you walk into that and you, you, you embrace that into your operating system, it'll always become, I think a, a tool of destruction. Ultimately. Well, Whereas if it you have like, yeah, help with, huh? with maybe people in the media trying to clear things up, because generally what actually kind of really the an empire is, it's just a multi-ethnic state, especially with one ethnicity sort of being more the core of it. You know, British empire, what's the core? The the actual Englishman, and then there's a whole lot of people, the majority are not British, right? So uh, versus a Westphalian state where it's sort of one nation with one ethnicity, generally one language, and it's very small and doesn't really include too many outsiders. So that's really what empire is. But obviously, you know, after uh, 50 or whatever many years, is it 40 or 50 years of Star Wars, um, you know, the term empire is a kind of just always negative. It's somehow always bad, uh, which is, again, some very interesting propaganda. One of the things we've got to realize is this, when we talk about empires, the difference here, you know, I think Putin mentioned this uh, a couple of months ago. He talked about the 1,000-year Russian state. Correct. When you look at China, you look at India, and I can even lump Russia into this as well. These are civilizational empires. There is a a a, a very strong, um, you know, leanings towards nationalism. There's a strong leaning towards culture, for morality, for shared values. And when you look at that, I mean, this is something that the West originally had, and we gave it away because you know we're, you know, we've allowed some people who are absolutely brilliant to to rule us now, and now there's all the mess that we're in. I'm not going to get into it because of the platforms that we're on. But I think that's a key marker here. And this is why I always keep saying it. it's like, you know, people are like, well, you know, we're going to somehow rebuild America. How? How are you going to do that? You have no shared values. Like mm -hmm. we're in a country right now where it, it is impossible to talk, you know, two two people from two sides of the political aisle, two sides of the polit political spectrum. They cannot even have a conversation. Family, don't talk to family because of political leanings, worldviews, et cetera, Right. Then on top of that, you have a country that has lost its culture. There's no culture. You know, you can't rally around the economy. You can only do that when things are good. But when we are facing something where things are literally falling apart, the only thing you have to grasp on is culture. And we've lost that. That's a big problem. Yeah, dude, the, the number one thing is there was a time. Like, remember then for... Us. I think we're all about the same age. Maybe Matt's a little bit of a young in here. But our parents then, who were sort of growing up in the baby boomer generation, for them, both the Democrats and the Republicans, the right and the left, loved and believed in the Constitution. They yeah. believed the U.S. Constitution was something, uh, maybe no one ever used the word sacred, but they sure acted like it. And mm -hmm. that was awesome. We all had this, at least, we have this one document that everyone agrees is right, although we definitely have a lot of different opinions about what it means. Okay, that's the glue that America had. 
And one of the things that's so frustrating as an American is we had that thing, the thing that could hold society together. And people like these sort of like AOC and uh, Nancy Pelosi's and all these other like Californian liberal twits, they, 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 they slaughtered the goose that gives the golden eggs. They cut its head off. And it's, it's just, it's maddening how we, we had that. And just go to a college campus. I think that's the one thing that that's the one thing I think that uh, some people are just uh, always say that Trump was fake and all this. Let's just assume he wasn't fake. There's only one way to get it back, and no one's going to like that answer. Uh, Well, that could get a little violent. Um, (laughs) But I was going to say that that's one of the things that Trump was good at doing is he was actually very good at attracting Black America and Latino America into these sort of overall values. I think that on a subconscious level, not a conscious level, but on a subconscious level, I think he understood, like, I got to get everyone on the same page. Kind of, sort of, on the same page here. And again, being on the same page doesn't mean agree, look alike, act alike. Kind of have the same mission statement for everybody, and we can move forward. But of course, that uh, that's all history now. So, unfortunately, for the future of America. Matty, your well, thoughts? Yeah, well, I mean, it's sort of like what... We're talking about with the, uh, the the balkanization strategy geopolitically. You also have it culturally, you know. And, and what what is Nancy Pelosi? All of these like you know libtards. What are, what are they capitalizing on? Is is an idea of a compartmentalized little little micro cultures that you know your per this is the this is the the bastardization of of cultural relativism, and when we let that seep in, this idea that you know. The old wisdom used to be that there were universal values that existed. And now the new wisdom that we've come to embrace, you know, and this is around the time when we really started jumping into becoming a consumer society cult, thinking that we could just consume and not produce to justify our consumption, but just simply, you know, dirty people we don't look <laughs> at are going to start doing the sweating and the producing uh, for 25 cents a day or maybe prison prisoners. Maybe we can give them a quarter. Um, to produce things, we're going <laughs> to toilet seats for military jets that we're going to sell for $5,000. Um, <clears throat> but as soon as we, we started letting this type of, of idea seep in that, oh yeah, all, all cultures are created equal. A, a, a tribal cannibalistic culture is just as equivalent in every moral way to, um, a society which, you know, has an organized structure of religion where people live till maybe they're on average 80 and you have an idea of the sacredness of, of life. Same thing, same thing. And we should all, you know, and as soon as you started bringing this sort of thing in, it just on the one hand justified the idea of keeping under like nations that had suffered under generations of colonialism and had not been allowed to develop. It, it mm-hmm. justified all of a sudden they're being kept that way because that's their natural ecosystems is just to be in a situation where they walk 12 kilometers a day to get water from a, a little stagnant pond and uh, die, you know, watch two out of their five kids die before the age of two and, and have a, an average life expectancy of 30. That's just the way they choose to do things as part of their cultural ecosystem. So it justified keeping them backwards not providing dams high technology leapfrogging became a bad word like leapfrogging technologies um and then internally it created a society of of people who are just super confused thinking again that you know my gender my micro gender micro culture is is all there is and things like the constitution which implies a certain universal language of the declaration of independence became seen as just these obsolete almost evil documents that had to be destroyed so we could all be free 
And now you got a whole society that's unified around Black Lives Matter, who's like unified to like take to the streets to burn down their their cities because they represent, you know, patriarchal colonial traditions. I mean, it's insane. And it's funny, man. It's those same patriarchal colonial traditions that go ahead and all those burned out businesses and land and whatnot that's just laying vacant in the quote unquote ghettos, right, are immediately bought in by private equity. And they're holding those tracts of land. The eventual goal is to get these people mm -hmm. out, redevelop those those pieces of real estate. It's a land grab. It is a bloody land grab. It's incredible what's happening. Well, and also it's a bit of a uh, what's happening. I think in the world, uh, if we're going to talk about sort of the, the the zeitgeist of our times, it's sort of a mutation of maybe individualism. Uh, what I try to explain to Russian people is it's almost like in America we had a, a soup where individualism is the salt. Okay, bear with me. Russians love soup. So if you add salt to soup, it tastes better. So you kept adding more and more and more. But now, like, we have so much individualism that there's only wet salt and there's no soup anymore. And it tastes disgusting. But our answer in our minds is add salt, taste better. And we keep adding more individualism, and it's not working. And what there are the perfect examples of this is with this whole thing about like the, the delusionalness of these genders. If you guys remember back to the 90s, what was the expression of the 90s? Don't label me, man, yeah. which is a very liberal thing. You can't tell me what I am. Exactly. And the whole generation of people like us have grown up, and we've had kids that have grown up with this stuff, and it's the hyper-individualism where no one can tell me what to do, no one could give me any suggestions. No one could rope me into anything. You can't say that I'm a man or I'm old right. or I'm European or whatever, you know? And that's the problem. It's a really well rooted in this idea that individualism is good. And the more individualism, the better, regardless of consequences. Again, we're eating a soup that is just wet salt at this point. We need to go back. Got to okay. rebalance it out. More soup, a little bit more collective responsibilities we have to acknowledge that we don't live in a fantasy world where you know if someone looks oh, at me and uh, oh, oh here's something because the way i talk people are like are you from finland like, <laughs> no way i could either be in russia i mean i could either oh. be like oh how, how can you say that how can you say that or i could use my mind and be like well people speak english speak english very flatly but people in finland learn foreign languages better so it's kind of a weird compliment and i just have to accept it <laughs> <laughs> because oh, because Finnish people people speak very flat, you know they have a very flat way of speaking like Americans do. So according to Russians, whereas Russians right. as you know, I am from Russia, so everything sounds very uh, 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 the way they speak. So, but anyways, that's an aside. So sorry, getting off topic here. No, that, that's a great image. I, uh, I got got a little bit of a Russian poet there. That, no, I think that that that's a really good way of getting across the 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 battle historically in my mind has always been how do you find a way to get that proportional balance between the sacredness of the individual and the yeah. the need and the sacredness of the well being of the whole and the entire. Yeah, well, Matt, know, Matt, I've actually tried to write an entire book on that. I'm just not happy yeah. with it. Well, Matt wrote <laughs> an entire book on it. Eventually, we'll get done. Matt's yeah. wrote an entire book on it. He's got three volumes out. You should pick it up and read it, bro. Uh, well, maybe Matt's a more talented writer than I am. I've only published <laughs> one book, and uh, it's uh, full of a lot more sarcasm and jokes than detailed information. So, uh, is it in Russian got, or is it in, uh, uh, is in English? Matt, to be honest, the it's real it is the real uh, like uh, question <laughs> of our times is this uh, in a future system? It's going to be the sort of uh, where is me the individual and where is us the society? And that is really one of the big uh, ideological questions of our time, because in a lot of ways, there kind of isn't an answer to it. 
And that's part of the book. Uh, the, the idea is that um, in a lot of ways it's contradictory. So, for example, we take this whole uh, a medical problem that we're not going to mention by name. So a lot of doctors tell you to do one thing. Well, if we live in a society, shouldn't we listen to authority and listen to what the doctors say? And that would be good. But on the other hand, I'm an individual. And shouldn't you have the choice over what happens to you? Yes. But individuals who don't know anything about medicine, can they really make good medical decisions about their lives? That's just one sort of example. But you'll see in a lot of ways, this sort of uh, obey society and the experts has a lot of bad sides to it. But individualism, where especially if we're all idiots, <laughs> also leads to the same sort of bad results. So the kind of isn't such a simple answer. Um, well, how do you I begin to answer that? What, what is your what is your what is a good way to move towards an answer if you don't have the full crystallized answer already? Well, that's the thing. Why I was writing the book is to actually find the answer as I do it. A, a lot of times, as I've been writing over the years about politics, okay. I, these the articles I write sort of actually have helped me build the like platform of uh, beliefs that I have. Because in the process of writing it, you can write a paragraph and be like, D -d 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 -d. you're like, wait a minute, I'm full of crap. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. This is this does not make sense to other stuff I've written in the past. You go back, you correct it, and and so it's kind of the uh, the process. I don't really have it. I think it's uh, at, at the moment it's a kind of the concept I want to call something like either bothness and neitherness, because in a lot of ways, uh, like what I said about should I have met the decision to make a met or should I be the all powerful one to determine uh, my medical future? Yes or no? Kind of has. You could kind of say it's either sort of both and neither at the same time. It's going to be something like that, or that maybe in some ways the solution is actually that we need to start looking at problems from the standpoint of not the left and the right, or maybe right or wrong or something, but more from the fact of me, society, how do we find that win-win position? That's kind of the rough answer to the book. But as you can see, I don't have the uh, nice packaging of words for it yet. I think uh, Matt in his uh, books, he, Matt, you really highlight it. You know, you really put succinctly into the forefront what our founders, what 1776 was all about. It is the open modular economic system. It is this system that creates a very grassroots, uh, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, a movement where both the public sector and the private sector are working together in harmony. And I think that's what the, the founding fathers, you know, wanted. That, I think that's the original vision of 1776, where you have real physical production, real physical economy, and you have, you know, those things that are working for the betterment of the public, and nobody's trying to screw over the other uh, other person. I think, Matt, I think in your books, you, you highlight that perfectly in, 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 the, in the, the two Americas. Well, thanks for the plug. Um, I, I mean, I'm trying to also zero in and figure it out too, a little bit my yeah. own way. And and you know, like the thing that I I really find was was uh, important. And again, here I'm a Canadian. People have said I'm a bit of a hypocrite to talk about America, but sometimes you have to get out of the. You I always say this. Appreciate the war from another perspective to sort of appreciate what. Because when you're I always say form, this, I I know, always say you don't need to have pancreatic cancer to talk about it. But go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, oh, exactly. yeah. And also, to, to tell them to miss you with that crap, that is such BS. Any, anyone who speaks English as a native language, if they get enough contact with one of the other sort of countries that also does that, I definitely think that we can understand each other pretty well, given the chance. I don't know. That's, no, no, I that, appreciate that. that. I, I, I'm obviously, I feel the same way. And, you know, we'll, I think we'll, that, v and I will uh, get together. Oh. We'll give you an official American discussion permit. Yes, you do. You're, you have yeah, your American yeah, discussion card from, from uh, Tim yeah. Kirby. Myself and CJ. 
Yeah. You got your American yeah, card on the wall here. It'll okay. Good. <laughs> I won't have to engage in any of these debates anymore. I'll just show them my certificate, and that's it. My permit. Well, then you can also uh, ask them. So, uh, do, do you have the right to discuss uh, England then uh, before uh, the Earth Constitution of what did you say, eighteen seventy six was signed? Sixty seven. Because your history had to start um, somewhere. <laughs> you know, you or, can, exactly. or can I? So I can talk about England up until seventeen seventy six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, it, it was a British. It was a bit of a British uh, civil war in a sense, uh, but it was two different opposing cultural uh, and epistemological currents clashing and and breaking out at that moment, at that time, in that place. Um, and Canada is part of that story in that sense too. So we're part of the same story. We just, you know, made different decisions. Um, but all that to say, the um, the question of culture is is vital, and I think that the. Uh, the founding fathers, like, you know, John Adams made, made this really great point. A friend of mine who's a lawyer, uh, Adam Sedia, uh, brought this to my attention. And I had never really heard this, but I looked into it. And yeah, it's, I think, a really great statement by John Adams that the Constitution and the Republic itself is built specifically for devoutly religious and moral people and can work with no other. That was very clearly understood. If you culturally allow selfishness mediocrity myopia hedonism to become uh too dominant at any point you cannot have the continuity of uh cultural excellence needed to both maintain and defend and improve upon because the the constitution is also written in the form of a, of a rather open uh document designed to have perfectibility built into it which is why you have the idea in order to form a more perfect union it's not perfect because mm. these seem to be on a lot. If you were like a logician, this would be like an absurd statement because it's either you're perfect, meaning you can't get better, or you're more better. You're, 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 yeah. you know, it's, it's either one or the other. But you're, you've got the founding fathers. Are they stupid for putting both of those terms together? More, more perfect. And it's like, no, they were just smarter than the people who are confused. And they understood yeah. that, you know, as society continues to move generations into the future, you have to allow for the act of creative ideas to make a process better. Because, frankly, we are always going to be fallible. Human beings are a creature which will never be these automaton, perfect, sinless, viceless, perfect beings of angels. We won't we won't ever get that goal. But the idea of becoming of, of, of aiming for that mark is what allows us to get out of the swamp, you know, uh, to, to get, to become better people and to have a better nation. So culturally you have to have standards of education, standards of media, standards within uh, arts and music and, and other things that allow for the cultivation of that garden. And if you, if these things become crappy, because let's say you have political agendas who have taken over and corrupted these things, let's say you've allowed the Rockefellers, uh, foundation to start, you know, paying for and, and shaping the approach and way of thinking in medical medical colleges and and other universities and other elementary schools, and you will allow that in. Man, you're done. Like you, you cannot, you cannot maintain that republic. Good point, man. Foreign influence. Yeah, the culture is the key foreign influence from within, in a way. Yeah. Oh, we're taking a look here. What's what's on the screen here? Rogue news. Yeah, just a shameless plug. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Oh, it's plug time. Okay, whatever, well, guys. Uh, I don't know. Uh, v, I don't see him anymore, so I'm going to say, guys, go to roguenews.com because remember, Rogue News 
could be destroyed by the evil powers that be that have destroyed my life on certain fronts. Remember, my travel, my tourism videos are officially blocked from YouTube. So no, your tourism videos are crazy. That's crazy. Jeez Louise, man. Like you're you're I mean, eating like potato pancakes in like uh, Siberia and th those yeah, things. Yeah, you know what's ironic? My political <laughs> channel is still up, but the one about tourism that specifically has zero political <clears throat> stuff in it. Uh, it got blocked immediately. It's too attractive. Operation. It's too attractive, Tim. I, I guess. I guess you guys look, look like not Mordor. You're actually uh, that's what it is. They're, they're thinking it was Mordor, and, and the Russian people are the orcs. Right? I know. Yeah, guys, did you hear that from me? Because within Russia, there's this thing where, like, this anyone who doesn't like Russia calls Russia Mordor. And the problem is, I'm not a real Lord of the Rings fan. Oh, but yeah. I don't, I don't even really know what to say, to say about that. I've always found it to be kind of lame. Russia, they tell them Russia's Rivendell. Because it's also about perspectives, man. Because look at those elves. Aren't they just kind of prissy and gay? And their little gay kingdom where everything's whoa, all whoa, fragile. Whoa, 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 whoa. As a Tolkienian myself, somebody who appreciates J.R.R. Tolkien and the lore, I take great affront of that, man. The elves are really All right, well, dude, dude, then you know better than me because, like, uh, I have one have friend who's saying that the movie sucked because they didn't have a guy. Was it Tom Bombadil who had, like, a donkey or something? And he's not in the movies, and my friend was yeah, like, Yeah, I crap. mean, it's not exactly. Oh, wait, wait, like wait. That's, that's the Hobbit. You're thinking about the Hobbit. Maybe I am. I don't even know. You're thinking yeah, that, about that was the crap. Hobbit, the, the Hobbit trilogy was terrible. That was terrible. It was yeah. a video game turned into a oh, movie. Like, I, but the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I like my fantasy a little bit more. Gritty. I'm more of a Dune guy. I was actually happy. The Dune movie was pretty good. Um, Dude, Dune, Dune was absolute. Yeah. I'm a Dune guy. I like Frank Herbert, right? But yeah, Dune, the movie, in comparison to Peter Jackson's masterpiece, there is no comparison. Tim, oh, the one from I, the 80s? I, no, the one from the 80s was baller. I'm, you know, I, I guess I oh, finally found the other person who loved it. That's, that's different. You're one of the few that like the 80s variant. A lot oh, of people yeah, like, dude. It, it is so cheesy. gritty and dark. And like when I was a kid, so again, I watched as a kid. When I was a kid, I was like, I don't know, maybe something about that. You watch that movie enough and you just start reading about geopolitics. You know, dude. you're just like, oh, I want to read about Henry Tim, Kissinger. This is your homework for this weekend. Tim, Tim, this is your homework for the weekend. Oh no! Homework. You're gonna no. go. I didn't know that was part of the deal. You're gonna okay. go this weekend, and you're gonna watch at least one. Start with the Fellowship of the Ring. Start there, Peter Jackson's. Right, watch that, and then watch, you know, the the two towers, and then Return of the King. If you have the time, you know, break it up. All right. I, I don't know. I think I may have watched you need to do at some point. Okay, I'll have to do that. But but in these movies, man, it's someone I used to do that. Like, uh, I I only tried the live steel for a while, but you know, like the, the sword fighting when you're suited of armor with you got the wooden weapons and stuff. I used to do that. Whenever I saw you see these Hollywood movies, the way people fight like this, it's always just I don't know. It's it's hard for me to sit through. Hollywood it. is done. It's finished. American doesn't produce any more real good popular culture. I mean, we've wrecked everything. There. Oh. There are people love the, there are people and we're detonating our own pop culture. That's how retarded we are. Yeah, because the thing is, V, it's it's happening fast because yeah. Lord of the Rings was like what 20 years ago, and that was the thing where everybody loved it. I mean, I'm I'm just a sort of weirdo about martial arts stuff, <clears throat> but like people loved it. It's incredible. You know? It's the and greatest trilogy of our time. We've gone through, and now there's the new Lord of the Rings that has like black hobbits or something. Going out with that. It is being and here's the thing: Amazon spent one billion dollars on the rings of power this is this modern inclusive uh, interpretation the remake yeah. you know where you got like this elf who looks like don lemon from cnn 
but with elf ears. Ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, baby. Some of the guys over at Nerd Erotic, Gary at Nerd Erotic, he he, he calls them uh, Don Lemonless. <laughs> wow. Don Lemonless. Wow. <laughs> and uh, oh, it's terrible. And here's the thing. Oh. They have lost so much money. that It makes me think why – when you look at how poorly it was done, and this is, and I, I'm glad you brought this up, and I'm glad this conversation segueing this way because it kind of gives us a a a, a, uh, um, uh, a testament to where we are culturally and as a and as a quote unquote world power, so to speak, right? Yeah. yeah. Amazon spent a billion dollars on this thing, a billion dollars, sixty something million dollars per episode. They committed for five seasons. I don't even know if this is coming back for a season two. Now, here's the thing. Mm-hmm. When you look at the CGI, they were copying and pasting the crowds. Okay, so in other words, oh. it, it, where's the $60 million an episode? None of the episodes look like they were $60 million. Mm. They hired not, not B-list writers, but D-list writers yeah. who have no, zero experience within the field in their profession. They were nobodies. Why would you hire nobodies to write something Guys who never read Tolkien, the complexity, the marvel that is Tolkien, right? Not, not even read the material. And then come out with this weird thing, which is alienating everybody. It's terribly written, terrible pacing, horrible, right? And yeah, I'm convinced. Well, again, it goes back to my, my thing of it's like, okay, if you understand that The Lord of the Rings was great, but it's it's finished. It's really hard to take something that's considered a masterpiece and duplicate it. Yeah, exactly. Like, you if anything, it'd be like, or, okay, for some reason you we want to have something that, that has... That's what we're doing in the West. We're retconning everything in our prop culture. And here's the thing, and this yeah. is my belief, that billion dollars that Amazon spent on this, this is a money laundering payoff. There's no yeah, way yeah. God's green no, it's, it's it's the Ukraine. It's the Ukraine model for uh, Netflix. Exactly. Or whatever it is. Uh, it's money laundering. Yeah. Amazon is somehow getting... Somebody's getting paid off. It's some sort of a money laundering operation. I mean, we all know how Amazon got its start. There is no freaking way you spend $65 million per episode. There's no freaking way you spend a billion dollars on this. To be honest with you, what I want to do is I want to offer, because if Hollywood's going to have a bunch of weird white people write movies about black people and do a terrible job, I'm a white guy who could do it. Because you know what? One of the most popular movies among like history buffs is Zulu, okay? We oh, take that God. idea. Because first off, the Zulu warriors are awesome. And they're black guys, and, and all the wars against the British take place in Africa. We take that, except we focus on one of the battles where the Zulus win instead of lose, like in that movie. Boom. Money. We have the guys with the cool uniforms. They got the awesome shields and all that. It's going to be crazy. A bunch of guns. It's going to be yep. amazing. Uh, we're coming out 2026 when Amazon funds it. Tim Kirby directed. Tim, Tim Kirby and hardcore. I don't know any really, really jacked black guys who are good at acting. Uh, help me out I, here. I think, uh, that's a dime a dozen in Africa, bro. You can find okay, well, Jack the black dudes in Africa. Yeah. Well, the Zulus were in good shape, man. You ever uh, see they're amazing. Was an amazing empire. Those guys are those guys are tough, but they're also tough like I have, like I am with a big stomach. So <laughs> I want to shift gears to another empire. Now, guys, what is the function of the United States Coast Guard? Uh, I guess to try to find incursions onto U.S. territory, especially and to from the olden days to observe uh a pirate activity, you know? Right. What the hell are they doing in the South China Seas? Are you serious? Oh, that's Coast not Guard our coast. South China Seas? Dude, oh, no. the U.S. is pushing to extend the Coast Guard patrols <laughs> into the Indo-Pacific. Oh, like, I guess they can make the argument because of, like, Guam or something being a U.S. colony still. And so they have 
is that how they're it's they're justifying this? So crazy, man. I, they I, I don't know. Operating U.S. waters at least. Look, enhanced Pacific role says China gets excited during training with Taiwan. They're in the south. They're in the they're in the south. They're in the chi- South China Seas. Oh, they're again, literally off of Taiwan. Taiwan. Yeah. Why? I mean, oh, like Matt said, it's it's all about Guam. Like, remember uh, when Kim Jong uh, Un uh, threatened to bomb Guam or something during oh, Trump? Yeah. It's right. all about Guam. <laughs> got 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 to protect the motherland. <laughs> I guess yeah. I don't know. Wow, that's yeah. uh, that's just a. It really just also shows like this whole weird like legal. One thing, guys, I don't like is legalese, and these sort of like legal trick were a tricking of like manipulating words to do this and this that, and it's just ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. I, I don't mm-hmm. even know. Mm-hmm. I mean, Pro- that, China, bill. <laughs> China does though present a case of um, sort of you know it's the ancient celestial empire, but it it is using both maritime and land uh, power at the same time, which is interesting. Based on what you were saying earlier, Tim, about how when yeah. you get into the the sea power alone and become that becomes your your orientation. Yeah. Um, you sort of preset your destiny as an empire into something pretty vicious because ultimately, like, there's a, I think, there's a, when, you know, when you read Al, uh, Alfred Thayer Mahan, um, mm-hmm. the Anglo-American, uh, you know, grand strategist from the from uh, West Point back in the 19th century, he, you know, he makes the point you should never have rail. You don't need rail because shipping can be done cheaper and uh, mm-hmm. rail is expensive and uh, it's more... If, so, but, it, but it's all based on on his modeling of, of the British grand strategy. And it's like yeah. there's a limit of how much perf- perfectibility and improvement you could get on your shipping technology. You're like the physical constraints of moving an object on the water has certain mm-hmm. boundary conditions, which when you get onto the land, there is no such limits. Like you can all of a sudden enter into a domain of going to electrified rail, to high speed maglev rail vacuum tube rail tech like thousand kilometers an hour like the amount of of power for overall and every time you increase a technology you're increasing your entire scientific industrial base right is all now expanding so what does that do to the the cultural norms of the society that embraces that let's say like china right Mm -hmm. thirty thousand kilometers of high-speed rail that entire society now when they go to school study rail college when they study physics it is now being transformed by this new uh, quality that they have in their entire economy, which means smarter people, smarter people, harder right. to control. And so I think that's a part of it too. China's going for both land and sea at the same time and do, and walk in that balance in a nice way. So they're not putting all of their eggs in just the sea basket, but they're keeping that, that, uh, well, they could uh, have to, if they didn't, if they didn't have the whole belt and road initiative, they, uh, then the United States could cut them off and crush their economy within a day. Of course, it would hurt the American economy as well. But yeah, they have to have this uh, diff- nece- necessary diversification. But another thing to remember about China is they don't really have territory away from mainland China. Mm-hmm. You know, there are some islands around China themselves, but they don't really, they, they have the focus of sea trade, but they sort of have more the land empire sort of layout. You know what I mean? It's kind of like with the United States. Obviously, the United States has always had boats, even from the very beginning. But really, until World War II, I mean, we didn't have control of the Pacific. And if you think about it, during the early days of the United States, the United States really only had one coast in the east. The United States was much more landish, you know, in its behavior before uh, World War II. It's almost like the United States was maybe an exceptional nation. No, Tim, we weren't, man. No. Oh, because of the stuff in North Africa? No, look at the Spanish-American War, bro. 
Oh, that's right. Come on, we're, yeah. We were – what even the Monroe Doctrine. How do you think we maintained the Monroe Doctrine? We were running horses up oh, and down from Canada right. okay, to South America. It was a Navy. Yeah. Okay? Naval power, it was back then – yeah. Even up until today, in some regard, is the definition of military power, right? Is well, yeah. naval power. So as soon as America got its legs and was able to stand on its own two feet, it immediately went working and developing what? Its army, its land-based power? Yeah. No. Well, and you're navy. right. That's what, they, that's what they say about the aircraft carrier. Like, the aircraft carrier is the ultimate expression of that. It is. It, 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 project, it, it is. It is. You know, yeah. project power somewhere else. Like, Russia has one. India has one. And America has, like, 14 or 16. India has, like, so, I think. Because if you don't have an aircraft carrier, you can essentially only send fighter jets, I think, up to, like, 500 kilometers there, 500 back, maybe less. Yeah. It basically forces you to stay around your own borders, essentially. Right. Right, so, and then hypersonics and 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 ballistic missile technology has changed the game in that regard. So we're oh uh, yeah. So in theory, evolving. because of the hypersonics, as of very yeah. recently, yeah, like for a country like Russia could definitely reach out and touch someone more. However, their ability to reach out and touch someone is still very much so affected by where their borders are. So yeah. So I mean the. It is the natural inclination for any great power, any great uh, any great country, to balance between land and sea. It's an imperative. You cannot you, in, in this day and age, in this modern age, you cannot ignore one without the other. You, it has to be a balanced approach. You got to have a strong navy. You got to have strong land forces. There's no other way around it. Yeah, unless um, you're completely mm -hmm. landlocked. Yeah, pretty much. And being landlocked is a good way to be manipulated. <coughs> Hungary. <laughs> <laughs> If Hungary has the worst geography for their political position. <clears throat> yeah, I think they they'd love to jump ship on a lot of this stuff and make better trade deals with Russia, but they can't because they're surrounded on all sides. Okay. So I guess we're going we're gonna to start opening up for some Q&A. Uh, folks, do you have any questions? Uh, please post them in the chat. Is that, is that, is that how it is? We're going to post it in the chat? Yeah, just post it in the chat. There's one fired away already. We need to have uh, like a call-in number. Oh. We've got to set that up, man. Maybe some sort of call-in number where people call into? We do, we do have it, but I just need to test it, make sure it works. <laughs> <laughs> now he tells me. Uh, yeah, that's a cool question uh, from Sue. Uh, please explain, explain what you think Canada's role with China is. Um, antagonistic. I, I mean, that. The, the first thing I'd say is um, there's a lot of alt media propaganda right now to try to like pass on this thesis, which has no bearing in reality that the CCP is like controlling Canada and, and like their police stations are operational across Canada. And, um, like if you actually dig scratch on any of those claims that are like coming in very loud right now and amplified, there's nothing backing that up there. The, the so-called police stations are not police stations at all. It's uh, it's a service that was provided during COVID for all the people who got locked outside of Fujian. Um, there's like a hundred of them. There's three of them in Canada and Toronto mostly, where there's a lot of Chinese who got screwed. They couldn't update their visas, things like that. And part of it involved, um, part of China's policy has been, especially since 2012, um, trying to crack down and extract the weeds of their deep state heavily. And there's been a lot of penetration into a lot of the branches of their society. Um, managed by the National Endowment for Democracy, a lot of CIA fronts. Um, some of them have been built up under the days of the 1970s when Kissinger was coming in with the Club of Rome, setting up structures of power that really got insane in the 80s. They had their own sort of like modern Trotskyite movement, um, kind of like what happened to Russia under the new economic policy of Trotsky where Armand Hammer 
and these Western sort of feudal capitalists came in and started buying up big chunks of the Russian economy. That was sort of what was being set up for China. That's what was done by by George Soros in China and a lot of his assets. Uh, it was being done. It, we saw it. We saw it done in uh, in Russia in the nineties. So a lot of these these criminal agencies, many of them have deep connections into Davos. Um, they they were extracted in different waves, but a lot still remain. Um, and so there has been the argument. Well, China has been trying to figure out how do you rein this thing in, and it's not just based in China. A lot of it is based in are provided sanctuary by CSIS, the Five Eyes intelligence, to run operations against China from uh, external domains. Canada being a big a big one. Um, so they have not arrested anybody, but they have had uh, their diplomats and others uh, going to meet and basically tell people in Toronto or others who have com commit committed criminal acts, like it would be very much worth it um, to go back and face your crimes in, in trial because, um, let's say, you know, like your, your kid ain't going to be going to school if uh, you don't do that and you want your kid to be in school, right? So that's produced something like 40,000 people uh, over the course of the last three years have said, you know, expat, maybe some of them have been falsely accused. I don't know. But the point is, a lot of them are actual criminal, hardcore criminal elements, triads, other things who have been persuaded to go back face trial. Um, so, yeah, as far as Canada is concerned, we have cut off, I mean, the Privy Council, um, the, the entire British apparatus has vetoed uh, China des Chinese desires to buy up. Uh, construction companies in Canada, you've had a very overt top-down intention to cut off um, Chinese businesses, especially when China realized that getting addicted to cheap Canadian uh, oil and natural gas, which was being promised about a decade ago, um, that was being promised. And, and, and the offer being made to China from Canada was, hey, get addicted to us. Get We're, we're a honeypot. We'll, we'll undersell, even lower than market value, the resources from BC and, and Alberta to you or the Yukon, and you just don't get sucked into any type of similar relationship with Russia. Don't get those re resources from Russia. And I think China realized that by doing that, that puts them at a big liability where the taps can be turned off at the whims of the uh, their opponents. And they said, well, at a certain point, you know what? We'd rather actually not do that. We'd rather go with the power of Siberia. We'd rather go with that orientation. It's a much more reliable partner. And as soon as they began doing that, um, the British controlling hand of Canada has been much more aggressive, uh, demonizing the the Confucius Institutes, things like that. And yeah, no, it's 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 pretty bad. There's no Canada is is currently being run by an antagonistic anti-China philosophy and governance. Tim, oh, there you I, go. I saw this in your your uh, Telegram. Oh yeah, Alex Jones needing to vacate <laughs> U.S. <laughs> Oh, well, yeah. Well, the one thing is, guys, you know, I saw that, that um, now Alex Jones is facing, I, I can't believe it, but I guess it's true, a billion dollars in fines for hurting people's feelings. So I said, uh, just because, well, this this may sound like something I, I'm sarcastic, but it's not. This is the problem when you're from Cleveland. Everything you say sounds sarcastic, even when you're not. But I really, seriously, I'm offering, uh, you know, I know people have come here under refugee status. Uh, but they have to kind of prove it or political asylum. And uh, if Alex Jones really uh, needs to escape uh, this uh, sort of a debtor's prison sentence he's been given, uh, if he can hit me up or find me, dude, we can get you political asylum, Alex. You can start fighting the info war from over here. Uh, it's going to be hard, but I'll help you out, man. We need you free. We need your uh, voice to be heard. So, Alex, if you're listening, I'll help you out. 
And but the question was, have I gotten through to him yet? No. That, that'll be some stuff, wouldn't it, man? If he's uh in Russia, broadcasting from Russia. Oh my god! Oh man, I, I love Alex. I think uh, some people are like he's kind of corny. No, no, no. The corniness, it's it's all it's all part of the thing. It, yeah. It's all part of the drawing, baby. So I don't know. I I love Alex, and I would uh, like to help him, but um, I don't know if that's a benefit. If he sees it as a benefit, I'd have, be happy to have him here. And trust me. Um, if anyone's facing political repressions, it's him and a certain former president. So, yeah. Here's a great question. What are you guys most afraid of, your local area, and what step are you doing to prepare? That's a pretty good question. Uh, I guess, Tim, because you are the farthest away from the local area, what yeah. are you doing over there? Well, if you want to talk about my local area, the thing I'm worried about is, uh, you know, I'm not a super important person. However, I am one of the 60,000, however many people there are on the Ukrainian hit list. So to some extent, nice. you know, uh, they, they killed uh, Daria Dugana, and Daria Dugana and I were pretty good friends over the years. You know, I've wow. seen, I saw her uh, a lot more than I've seen a lot of my relatives. You wow. know, I uh, spent time with her maybe more so than a lot of people who I actually would think of would be more in my sort of list of guy friends. You know, we wow. did a lot of things together, and they killed her. So yeah, You guys uh, were you know, both at RT, right? Uh, yeah, well, uh, no, no, not, not through RT, through other stuff, but yeah. I can tell you that, uh, you know, uh, that, that hit close to home. So yeah, I remember you told anyone that. here could be next. Anyone, including me. I saw your interview with, uh, Daria, um, on, uh, on a moral yeah. approach to, uh, to a scene, uh, feminism, so-called that, but it was nice. It was a good interview. I, I she oh, was, thanks, uh, thanks Matt. You know, I, I want to also, I guess I should, you know, uh, maybe, uh, admit something that I felt bad about, but I haven't said publicly, but I'm going to say it now. Um, a while ago when the special military operation started, her father gave kind of like for the first time, sort of for the first time after that started, he went in public. I didn't expect this to happen. You know, where there was this sort of this thing that was invited for journalists to like ask people questions. I don't know. I got invited. I was like, all right, I'll show up. And he's there and he gives a speech and I noticed no security. No security, no, or that, you know, the guy who's kind of sitting there was not really part of it. He's always looking over his shoulder because he's the security guy with a gun in his pocket. Yeah. None of those guys. And I thought even to myself, like, man, that's a bad idea. Why is this a world-renowned pre professor who's also considered one of the most dangerous people alive? Why does he have no security? But I didn't say anything. And yeah. now I regret that, guys. So I just a word to If anyone here right now, you have a friend who's going through some sort of terrible situation or they're doing something wrong with their lives, say something. Because maybe I could have done something. So right. say something. Sage, what are you doing in the local area to prepare? And then Matt, and then I'll, we'll answer the next question. I mean, just looking at disruptive economies, you know, I have a, you know, if you look at what certain aspects have happened to small business lately and what corporations are doing with the price increases. Now, I granted some of it, that is inflation, but you know as well that it's somewhat is kind of greed, right? In terms of the built-in, uh, consumer price index. So I think it's important to support uh, those that are countering the main um, economy system. I'll give you a perfect example. So one of my friends in the northern part of the state, uh, because retail rent is just so expensive right now, they actually have a uh, marketplace. And on weekends, there's probably about 25 or 30 vendors uh, that come out in that marketplace and have everything from fresh produce to uh, certain clothing, um, you know, a, a lot of counter markets that are taking place. And and I think it's important to support those because I think it's going to be important as we continue continue to watch the consolidation of of, uh, of literally small business just being destroyed here the next few years. It'll just continue and escalate. Yeah, Maddie. Mm. 
Well, uh, I mean, I my for years of my life, uh, since getting politically active, I would always focus on uh, big picture, holistic, top-down solutions as my primary focus. So for me, um, the idea of needing to also shift strategies, think tactically about, okay, protecting or buffering or doing what I can um, in the context of the currently unfolding economic collapse has been sort of a new way of thinking for me, of course, Um that involved making certain decisions. Um, I'm in Canada, it's a somewhat hostile environment. You know, we were on the State Department list, my wife and I, um, the Russian pillars of disinformation list, um, not that long ago. I and, remember. Uh, we've had our own run-ins with, uh, with Five Eyes operations over the years, which have not been pleasant. Um, but what we did is, you know, we, we put our resources together with a, a close friend and we, we bought a little property um, outside of the city, got some land. And, um, you know, um, we want to make a little greenhouse as well, but we at least have a certain amount of buffer. Um, that being said, it's, it's not something you can easily plan for. And, and it's, it's an agricultural zone. So like CJ was, was saying, you know, there's a certain community orientation of farmers markets, things like that, that are available. Uh, but, you know, we're into something new. It's tough to talk about because we've never experienced this type of process uh, before. You know, we have examples where it's like, OK, it's kind of like this, kind of like that. It's kind of like the great has elements of the Great Depression. It's got elements of hyperinflation 23. It's got elements of 14th century new dark age stuff. It's wild. <laughs> It's wild, man. It's wild. At the same time, you also have this emergence of a viable um multipolar order which is completely different and we've yeah. never had a convergence of civilizational forces establishing a viable system that actually floats and works and is in, in in harmony with natural law we've never had that either so that's yeah. a very positive thing um which is good and i i mean that's shaping the contour of the the environment that we here in the transatlantic are operating within which is the only point of hope that i could see right now and it might get ugly in the short term, but I think in the long term, there's a lot of good reason to uh, to have faith that we've got a strong future. Yeah. And one thing I just want to jump in, I might have not understood the question. Uh, one thing I did for my future overall, bought a house with cash in the woods. There you go, brother. In a country where there's like almost no uh, land property taxes. Anyways. There you go. Uh, I think what I'm doing is... Um... I think the greatest thing that any American could do is is try to create as many alternative sources of income as much as possible. And whatever you get, you know, put it away, you know, food, long term storage, things of that sort. You know, it, it, you start you might want to start looking at some prepping stuff. That's what I would uh, recommend. Here's a good question by Raven Six. Will the U.S. sanctions on China chip manufacturing cause China to look more at Taiwan? It's a great question. Uh, you know, it's funny for me because. I've I remember the last uh, you know several weeks reading articles written by uh, talking heads who don't work in the chip industry don't know the logistics procurement things of that sort um, don't really quite know the markets and then they're commenting on it saying China's done the United States is completely choking China when it comes to chip manufacturing which is insane folks you have to understand the reason why Huawei if the U S is winning the chip war right and I love this as well. Remember Huawei, and I said to, to people all the time, if you want a phenomenal phone, years ago I said, get a Huawei. It's better than an Apple device. And Huawei was set to supplant Samsung as the largest chip manufacturer. And I am an operating system agnostic. So I have everything from the, the Spy phone okay, to the, um, the Galaxy Z Fold 4. I love this device. I could I, – you have to pry this off my cold dead hands. But – 
So Huawei was set to overcome as the largest telecommunications company on planet Earth, number one. And number two, they were rolling out 5G. And what did the U.S. cry about? They're they, they, they're, they're reverse engineer our 5G technology. And CJ and I fell off our chairs laughing because we had no 5G technology. Huawei was being persecuted by the U.S. government because they had a 5G network that was unhackable by Five Eyes. Okay? NSA prison software and backdoors did not exist on their devices. In fact, when um, the company was called, uh, I think it was called Cellurex or uh, Cell something, it was, it's an Israeli company. And it's the, it's the company that the U.S. federal government would call in order to crack open a phone. And under that, uh, under that Israeli company, iPhones were very easily cracked. These things easily cracked, right? Samsung's difficult to crack. You can crack them, and you'll get some of the metadata. The phone that was impossible to crack was Huawei. So is it any wonder, mm-hmm. right? Oh, my God. And then, oh, they, they, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're stealing our 5G technology. And Huawei's like, we're not stealing anybody's technology. In fact, you know, we'll go ahead and, we, and we'll make the source code open source so you can see it. And even then, Huawei got slammed and whatnot. And they're still surviving. They're doing well in, you know, in the Asian and European marketplaces and, and anywhere outside of America. They're doing fine. Uh, they've been supplanted by Xiaomi uh, and BBK, which owns uh, Oppo and OnePlus. They're like another major player internationally. And now you fast forward to where we are with this chip manufacturer. First of all, every single one of these chips, whether it's in your phone, your car, whatever, runs off of something called the ARM architecture. And ARM is a British company, right? And the ARM architecture is an open source architecture, right? So all your Qualcomm chips, your Snapdragon uh, 8 Gen 1Gs and and every single one of the like, MediaTek processors, Qualcomm, uh, Kirin, um, or, you know, Apple's, uh, a- a- Apple's A15 and A16 uh, chips, they are all built on the same architecture, and they, but they all have individual customizations and tweaking to make it different. Now, the biggest ARM manufacturing chip uh, company in the world is, uh, is uh, TSMC, which is based in Taiwan. Okay, and uh, then second to that is Samsung. Samsung has uh, the Exynos uh, processors and whatnot. So uh, then, of course, uh, Qualcomm has Snapdragon. Okay, these are the the three major Snap. Uh, I'm sorry, ARM manufacturers that are out there. But TSMC is the biggest one. Okay, and TSMC, uh, you know, they've got it down to I think five and four nanometer technology. China's already about to leap that they're about to introduce a three nanometer chip okay so they're already working behind it so any of this u.s sanctions is it going to affect arm is it going to affect china no why arm is open source right secondly what makes a chip fast like it's amazing like you know the difference between an android device and an apple device an apple device on a single core thread processing is extremely fast faster than your typical Android device, much faster. The reason for that is that Apple uses a great deal of what? Silicon on their chips, okay? Who is the largest market controller of silicon in the world? China. Who is the largest market controller of gallium, infinium, hafnium, rhenium, molybdenum, 
uh, cobalt, vanadium. Who, who owns that market? China. So if the architecture is open source, okay, and the very things, the raw materials you need to make these are controlled by one major country, what are the odds that China is going to absolutely re- leapfrog the West? 100%. Because this is exactly what's happening with, uh, with, 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 with America crying about the fact that we can't even feel the hypersonic uh, weapon system. We don't, we're not even at first gen yet. Dark Eagle is being deployed to Europe. What the hell is Dark Eagle? It exists on paper only. Meanwhile, China's already on first gen hypersonics. Russians are two and a half gen, moving to gen three, right? And and then the and then the Americans cry, the Chinese stole their technology. Well, well, and I, I find it hilarious because if the Chinese stole your technology, how come you don't have any? How come you don't even have a functioning model? This is the problem, folks. So so this whole thing about the uh, 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 you know China's chip industry is about to collapse. Garbage, just fake news. I mean, for the love of God, they're, they're, they have thorium reactors they're working on. They're, they've made a sun. They made an artificial sun that burns at 12 million degrees Fahrenheit for 17 minutes. You, you worried about a chip? Come on. Oh, that, that could I would, be I would that, make uh, that a little standalone video. Like a little, make that a little like five somebody, minute user hey, video. Feel that free to cut it and use cool. it. Someone that, needs to about say the sun, it, That's important because if any of you are sci-fi fans, the Kardashev uh, scale of... Uh, uh, the uh, development sort of index for interplanetary species, that's going to move us way higher on the Kardashev scale. So uh, that's interesting, interesting. But anyways, guys, maybe one more question that I unfortunately have to bail. So yeah, It's getting late over there. Tim. Anything else? Any other questions, what? folks? Rolling through it right now. Mm-hmm. It's all for you on, on pole shift and things like here. that. That's going to be a little bit longer of a I don't know nothing about conversation. Oh, here's a good um, question by Belage. There you mm-hmm. go. CJ. Oh, you click it. What are your thoughts on the differences on the legal system on a comparison level between Russia and U.S.? Timmy, that's going to be for you, buddy. No, that's an easy one. The fundamental difference that is kind of hard to explain, but you see it in practice, and you might actually start to begin to agree with it, is in Russia, you cannot sacrifice your rights no matter what you do. There is no way to, like, uh, sign a waiver to get rid of your rights which creates some problems and some interesting solutions. And in some ways, it's sort of logical. So, for example, we have this one uh, thing about a lot of libertarians are like, you know, it's so important. It's so amazing that we have this, you know, the glorious Constitution, you know, uh, that uh, gives us these inalienable rights. It's amazing. It's great. And but as soon as you go to work, that doesn't count. Or you could sign a contract to sell yourself into slavery, basically. Whereas in Russia, that can't happen. You're not allowed to give up your rights to anything. So that's, that's a massive different system. The other major difference is that Russian judges have a lot more leeway to throw something out if they feel it's unviable. So you don't really have as many uh, frivolous lawsuits in Russia because the judge can just look at it and go that there's no merit to this and get rid of it. Uh, so that's why in Russia you don't really see much of that. The whole thing about well, you can't sign off on your rights is something that is hard to explain. You know, It's hard to really show how much of a difference that makes on society, but it uh, definitely adds up. And in, in context with the fact that Russians aren't litigious and they can throw away a lot of frivolous lawsuits, thankfully, it doesn't have that effect of, since there's no way to sign a waiver, everyone who gets hurt at your amusement park can sue you for a million dollars. It just doesn't work that way here, uh, if that makes sense. Maybe you're referring to something else. 
but uh, that's probably one of the key things that um, is the most different. Uh, also, there are these huge bureaucracy centers around the country. Uh, they have two names. One is MFC, which stands for uh, Multifunctional Centers. They're also known as My Documents Centers. For some reason, they have two names, just to be annoying. Uh, and uh, basically, it's a big building, and it's full of people at windows, and you go in there with any sort of bureaucratic question. You uh, tell them what your problem is. You take a number, and they work it out with you. Uh, so essentially, they have these massive offices that where you can, in theory, do all bureaucracy under one roof. Very well said. Last but not least, somebody had to ask a question about taxes in Russia, Tim. Sure. Why don't you tell the astronomical property taxes you're paying there for two hundred? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. The, the astronomical property taxes of eight bucks. So uh, <laughs> I have two houses. One year I paid eight bucks for each one. So uh, yeah. So the thing is, property taxes are extremely low. They are something like one tenth of one percent of the value of what you own. But the value of what you own isn't based on uh, like the retail price but based on sort of a government price. And the government price is very, very, very low. It's maybe one-fourth the actual price. And so when it's so ridiculously undervalued and you're paying, you know, one-tenth of one percent of the value of something <clears throat> really undervalued, uh, you're not paying a lot. So property tax here isn't a thing. Like, uh, it's one of these things where in America, you know, Americans always talk, well, I got to live here because there's, the, you know, these property taxes are too high. I mean, no one, no one, trust me, Russians love to complain. And that's one thing they don't complain about. So hmm. uh, it's one of the best places to invest in real estate, in my opinion. Well, not with sanctions. It's very difficult now. <laughs> but if you can get money here, this is one of the best places to invest in, in the sense that the, the taxes on it are so low that if you can buy something, it's great. You're gold. It's not like in America, you buy it and you have to still pay $5,000 a year to keep it. Yeah, you know, you're paying eight bucks, so it's real nice. That's freedom, uh, man. You don't like yeah. freedom, Tim? I I do. And the other thing that gives me freedom is there's a program called being self-occupied. So, say for example, this kind of happened where a lot of people work a job, but then they do something on the side, and uh, the government created this program where you have this app on your phone, and when you do work on the side, up to a total of something like 2.4 million rubles a year, somewhere around there, uh, you pay. 4% income tax on your side hustle. And when it gets to that limit of 2.4 million rubles a year, uh, you can uh, open an individual entrepreneurship and pay six. It's wow. amazing, dude. I have money coming in from all over the place. It automatically goes into a bank account. The bank account automatically sends the signal to the app on my phone, automatically formulates checks for all this stuff. I can pay the government 4% of the value every month and they can't touch me because I got everything paid off. It there is amazing. It's it, 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 that's better. That's better than uh, the IRS SWAT SWAT teaming you because of uh, six hundred and one dollars that you got paid yeah. for on your Venmo instead of the five ninety nine <laughs> limit. Yeah, and well, that's one of the reasons why uh, the uh, current prime minister comes from the tax offices because he did a lot of good things like that and set up a lot of these programs. Brilliant. So that's another thing where that's I would tell him, guys, open your mind. Could you imagine? Could you imagine if uh, tomorrow American like entrepreneurs, people who work for themselves. So just some sort of graphic designer, uh, teacher, tutor, probably uh, something, I don't know, uh, music instructor, something where they work for themselves. They had to pay 4% income tax and they could all do that all from their phone. No IRS, Amazing. no nothing. 
That's brilliant. Wouldn't well, that be amazing? Yeah. Well, anyways, guys, uh, unfortunately, I really got to bail. Already, we reached an hour and a half mark, and I got to go. So, guys, Tim Kirby. And goodbye to the audience. Take care. Tim Kirby, Russia Hardcore. Follow him on Telegram. Matt, any other thing you want to cover? No, I, mean, I, I wanted to ask Tim about the uh, the evolution of his American Cities project. Uh, but oh. I guess you guys can have him back on a, to do an update on that since I think yeah. it's still moving ahead despite everything going on. Um, oh I know God. he has a project to create um, a city for expats wanting to get the hell out of whatever region they're in. Um, and uh, the land has been donated. Uh, I think that they've got the licenses to build, and it's super cheap land. So, yeah, you guys might want to give them the, the platform to uh, to speak about that a bit. Definitely. I remember one thing, though. One of the things that Tim said, that your rights can never be expunged. It can never be taken away. That, that's a huge thing. Oh. I remember my mentor, um, who basically taught me everything I know on, on brokering when I was cutting my teeth in, in strategic metals. Uh, he told me one thing. He said, V, and he's a South African individual, Retired at the age of 34. I met him when he was in his early 40s. Guy's like freaking set. I mean, loaded to the hilt. And he would tell me one thing. As somebody who was in the 0.001% of the of the, pot, of the income earners, he would always say to me, America's the only country. It's one of the few countries in the world where if they wanted to get you, they can get you. You have no rights. And I never understood that. As a young man in his, in his 20s at that time, I was like, what the hell is he talking about? We got freedom here, man. It's America got freedom. No. And you take a look at Alex Jones, right? Yeah. You they're they're hitting him with a billion dollars. Yes, he's gonna appeal. But how much money is he wasting? How much time is he wasting because the system just wants to fuck with him? Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That that's crazy. That's yeah. crazy. No, yeah, you you have freedom to the degree that you don't challenge the actual system itself. So when you think of your freedom as just being my freedom to pick what kind of pizza I want to eat, what kind of drink I want to buy and whatever, that's fine. You total freedom. You're fine. What kind of gender you want to be reassigned to all freedom. Fine. You know, but then as soon as you try to actually do something that involves challenging the, 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 the operating system itself, which is a trap, that's where you start pressing on what the nerve that that Alex hit. That Lyndon LaRouche hit, you know, I mean, we, we all know the story of, of how LaRouche had his entire organization cracked down upon. He was thrown in jail with, yep. you know, just fake charges for five years in an American prison in the 1980s before the rot and corruption got even as bad as it is today. It was hmm. way better. People were still reading back then, you know? Yeah. Um, and that, that's what happened. Or even just the cover-up of JFK, you know, and JFK or his brother began to press on the uh, the the controlled operating system back in the 60s yeah. and challenged to just bring back the basic practice of constitutional uh, law and, and economic activity. Just by doing that, bam, and people went along with it. People who knew better were, uh, were inclined to just sit down and shut up out of fear. A few who spoke up, you know, like Jim Garrison, did what they could, but there weren't many. Um, most people learned their lesson, which is just don't make waves. Try to just, you know get your kicks while you can. And like George Bush, you know, the, the <laughs> George Bush Jr., the uh, the model baby boomer said when he was asked, like, what is history going to think of you after you've bombed your rack to the Stone Age? His response was, I don't care. I'll be dead by then. It's like, yeah, okay. That, and that's why we're screwed, right? Like, that, that's why we've created a giant mess. We, we got exactly what we deserved in that sense. And, and there's chances to redeem ourselves. Like, you know, human beings can go back and... and and uh, and 
recover our bad decisions and, 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 you know, go back to our founding documents. But I mean, we've gone pretty far. Yep. Definitely. Yeah. The U S is still better. I mean, by far than, than in terms of like organizing politically in Canada, I found that, and also organizing a lot in the U S and California and New York and Jersey, Boston, uh, Detroit, over the years, um, I found that there's still something culturally very powerful with Americans, which I don't get in Canadians who are much more of a complacent people in general. The, the Freedom Convoy was a nice thing, but I, I encountered there, there's there's a dumbing down, obviously. There, there's like not a, a tendency to be able to really think in a, in a broad way about what is really going on in the, in the world. That's a problem, but there's a, a strong pride of not bowing down to nobility hereditary power there's a certain pride that's still there and activatable which is i think still part of the only viable part of the u.s republican movement now at this point that could feasibly offer any form of legitimate fight there's nothing else inside of the united states that i could see and in canada somebody asked something about alberta that any reason why alberta or the the west coast has any legitimacy is because they have aspects of that cultural moral uh dynamic as well and could they be a, so a sovereign country bc is pretty far down the <laughs> uh the shit stream of uh cultural uh you know post-truthism alberta maybe i mean their new premier daniel smith is pretty interesting you guys heard heard her uh, recent speech right upon entry of uh of the persecution against the unvaxxed no no it's uh, yeah, she's she's good. She, so far, that was a good speech. I don't know what she's gonna do. She's operating in a very difficult environment. Yeah. Um, but you know, culturally in Alberta, there is this pioneer spirit, a very blue collar spirit, which is why people are are a little bit more. They have more access to common sense, and they don't just adapt to great reset transhumanist uh, tropes very easily. So we'll see. I don't know. Yeah. Matt, thank you so much for being on. And uh, Vanessa Bailey, thank you for being on as well. I know she couldn't make it. She's had some uh, internet and power issues uh, out in Syria. So God bless you. Keep safe over there, Vanessa. Uh, and Maddie, you take care of as well. And uh, folks, yeah. you can find Matthew again, CanadianPatriot.org, RisingTideFoundation.net. Get the books. And you can find us at RogueNews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News. Rogue News on every single podcasting app. Note to humanity. We're everywhere you want us to be, plus a bag of chips. We need to come up with Rogue News chips, bro. There you go. See, no one's thinking about this stuff, man. I think the next hot market is chips. Yep. Maybe a Rogue News soup. Perfectly. Why not? And, uh, <laughs> we'll be served on the bread lines in the city near you in the United States, man. Why not? Should, the one should, in the many soup. <laughs> the, we should, yeah. we should develop a bean soup. That's it. Yeah. You know, and sourdough. That would be a good combination. <laughs> All right, gentlemen. Thank right, you so bye. much. See ya. Take care. CJ, take it away.